All right, mate. I've hit the record button now, so there's no going back. <laughs> All right, so keep keep the music. The giant thinkers. Giant thinkers podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. Hello, wonderful listeners. Ram Castillo here. Now, in the last episode, as you know, we had the global vice president and head of design at Visa. Kevin Lee, that graced us with his presence, where he dove deep into designing experiences. On this episode, number 11, it's a perfect follow-up to that because we have JP Stallard on the show, co-founder of Solve and was Samsung's first interaction designer in Europe. And he talks to us about designing towards emotions, personalities, and service design. Now, don't worry if that seems a little confusing to those emerging designers out there because JP articulates his insights in a very easy to understand way and he's got a wicked sense of humor and just a real down-to-earth bloke. Plus, he talks about how to build strong customer relationships, even to the point of sharing with us practical presentation tips to CEOs and key decision makers. Now, before we dive into that, the amazing Creative Live has sponsored this episode. You know I'm a huge advocate for them simply because they are the world's largest live streaming education website. You can watch classes that go to air for the first time for free, and then they are archived for purchase. You know, people always ask me, Ram, what's a resource you highly recommend to upskill when it comes to design? And I always refer them to Creative Live. The fact is that the online classes are taught by the most inspiring instructors and experts. And if you're like me and often have that niggling feeling where you should be learning something new, then don't ignore it. We all know that constant learning makes you more valuable. So for the Giant Thinkers community, you get 25% off any Creative Live design class. If you ever wanted to buy a quality class with lifetime access, now is seriously the time because this discount is only valid until the 30th of November, 2015. So head to creativelive.com slash giant thinkers to see what they have to offer and my top picks. Enter the coupon code giantthinkers3, that's giantthinkers and then the number three, at the checkout to redeem the 25% off any Creative Live design class. Now, without further ado, I present the very witty and very bearded JP Stallard. Welcome to the show, Mr. John Paul Stallard, aka JP. Mate, it's Hello. so good to have you. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thank you for being here. So look, quick backstory for all those listeners. I actually met JP in San Francisco and invited him to one of my creative live classes titled Get the Design Job That You Want. And uh, I had him in on a, as a guest on one of the segments uh, about, uh, I think it was about uh, interviews and email writing and all that sort of stuff. So uh, mate, he brought so much, you know, you brought so much value to that. And, and I've been- oh, thank you knocking on your email door 
uh, ever since the this podcast launched. Um, so thank you again for being here. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to um, be here again and working with you. I think so if, I remember, if I remember rightly, you brought me in to be the guy that would be looking at people's CVs That's and it. then break everyone's hearts by saying <laughs> you only look at them for 10 seconds at the most. And if they haven't caught your attention and they're in the bin, um, that's the one, hopefully, hopefully that was of use, <laughs> <laughs> mate. It's, uh, it's been getting great reviews so far. So, uh, let's, uh, let's continue uh, the useful information, uh, to break the ice. Although there's not much to break. First question here. Do you sing in the shower? And if so, <laughs> what are you singing? Um, I, I sing more in the karaoke bars than I do in the oh, shower. Really now? Uh, okay. Oh, yes. Don't stop believing. <laughs> and um, I'm much more of a, a BBC Radio 4 kind of guy in the shower. And um, But if I did sing in the shower, what would I sing? Yeah. Um, I think it would be something like uh, Private Dancer by Tina Turner. Wow. Okay. Straight, yeah. straight on there. Straight to the <laughs> straight to the to the top diva. <laughs> uh, why not? I mean, she rocks. What that's awesome, um, mate. That's really cool. So, for all those that don't know about your background uh, and where you're from, can you share a little bit about that and what your childhood was like and and how you grew up? Sure, definitely. Um, so, I'm a, a product of North London in England, um, about a mile away from the Arsenal ground. If that means anything to anybody. <laughs> It should do to some. And um, I grew up in a fairly typical working class household up in Muswell Hill. Mum is a lunch lady or dinner lady, depending on how you say it. And uh, my dad's a chauffeur. So I grew up. Oh, and he was also a butcher, a bartender, electrician and a builder. So I learned a lot of uh, customer services from my parents instantly and the necessity to work incredibly hard. Um, And that kind of propelled me into understanding that I needed to work hard and get an education to do what I wanted to do. And that was design and initially 3D design or industrial design, because that was the only thing I knew. I knew that there were cars, I knew there were products. So that's what you do. The graphic stuff, I didn't really have an appreciation of. It was more the physical aspect. So then I um, went through and I did uh, a BTEC to get myself into university and studied industrial design up at Northumbria University. And during that time, it was a four year course and you would do two placements. Uh, one I did at Design Bridge in London, and the other one was at Jones Garrard. And they designed everything from the front of trains to medical inhalers to first class seats for British Airways. And it was there I really understood that it wasn't the physical aspect of it, but it was the experience, the entire thing. And I also realized that I was a very poor physical designer being surrounded by all these amazing people. So I went, right, well, if I can't do that for a living, what can I do? And I realized that the experience was so much more enjoyable for me on the computer and being able to craft these experiences. 
Oh, um, my cuckoo clock's going off. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's it's, good. Time for an ad exact- break. No, we're not. We're not that type of show. <laughs> it Go is, for it's it. A lo- it's a lovely cuckoo clock. What time um, is it over there? Where are you? I'm in San Francisco and yeah. it is 6 p.m. right now. For all those so that, come- that can't mm-hmm. see, I'm, I'm seeing uh, JP uh, with um, this amazing view in the background there. Um, he's <laughs> just moved into his new office in San Francisco and it's, it's bloody bright there, mate. You've It is. It, what, what time does the sun go down? Uh, I think about an hour's time. Okay. Something like that. Uh, yeah, it's getting a little bit darker in the nights now. But okay. um, we digress. Going back Go to uh, going back to my childhood, mm. um, I realized that the experience was no longer about the the physical side, but more about the the whole experience, and that was migrating to the inside of the product, so the digital experience. And at that time, there were no real courses, no really real professionals out there talking about interaction design or experience design or service design. Um, so I really had to find my way through this, um, this quagmire of knowing that it's the product, but it's not designing the product. And I, I went back and finished my degree and I told them that I wasn't going to design anything physical and only design things digitally. And it was all about the emotions of the product. And they went, okay, <laughs> well, well, we'll let you work that out and see how it grades at the end, shall we? Um, and uh, I then designed the whole process about how do you start from an emotion and work up to an, a product or an experience? And then how do you imbue a digital experience with a personality? And that work and that understanding led me to getting a job at Samsung uh, as their first ever interaction designer in Europe, which sounds a lot loftier than what it actually is. Uh, (laughs) It means that I was, uh, in all essence, a junior interaction designer in a sea full of industrial designers Mm, and trying and then really learning how to communicate what it meant to talk about experience outside of the physical realm Hmm. and then yeah sorry go yeah no that's great i think that leads in nicely to um something that uh you've already partly answered which is uh where does your where where does your expertise lie Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's in um two parts one is talking (laughs) um and then the other part is understanding Hmm. and that's all wrapped up in a uh, a guise of what is the interaction of the product or the experience. So on a, on a tactical basis, Solve, my design consultancy, works out how the personality of a brand would be expressed through their digital experiences, whether it's on a screen or if it's on a phone or on a tablet or wherever. And trying to understand what the real problem is is where I think the expertise lies the most and sitting, communicating, getting down to the essence of what that thing is, um, is the hardest thing that I've learned how to do. Yeah. I think, um, you you know, uh, there's a couple of things that are going through my head right now. First is the buzzword that you've just said there, um, prior was service design. Um, 
And I think um, there there is a very fine distinction between, I guess, um, defining uh, the user experience in a general sense. And then on a deeper level, there's service design. And I know this mm-hmm. because I've worked at a very high-end service design company that only does service design. And, and it's really hard to articulate um, what they do because it's so in deep with designing experiences for a, a broad range of things. And a lot of that is even not even physical. So it could be a superannuation product. And mm-hmm. the service design uh, journeys uh, and trigger points underneath that and the funnels that go into that it was just like walking into a madman's room with all their, their plastered <laughs> um, notes and mind maps and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, can you tell us more about service design and, and, and how that affects, you know, brands and businesses these days? I'll try. I'll do my best to. Um, but it's been... Hey, when we look at where we are right now in terms of design, and design is a very strange word now because it doesn't mean what it did 10, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and it's hard to really express what it is because it's all about the context that it sits within and the scope you have to do something. So if you go back 10 years, nobody was really talking about any of this stuff. They weren't talking about what's the emotional essence of the digital experience you're having because there wasn't it was just hard enough to try and get it onto a screen and then try to understand it and it was really people that were at the royal college of art which were really exploring what personality is and through an understanding of what how you could imbue a product or an experience with personality you then get into the discussion of well, where does that personality live and where is it going to be? And how does it in- interact with others? And the moment you get into that, you start to realize that design isn't just locked to the screen and it isn't locked to the product, but it's, it's open to everything, including the distance between you and that screen and you and that um, train service and you and the TSA. Hmm. Understanding that mind map or the customer journey and then really detailing that out in terms of its positives and negatives and its friction points and its um, bright spots where it's really succeeding and where you can really grow from that enables you to just understand that design and whatever word you put in front of that, whether it's service or experience or product, it it's very hard to work out where those boundaries are anymore. Mm. Um, and we're finding that with um, the clients that we're working with. Some clients want us to come in, be very tactical and just say, can you make this look better? And other ones come in to us and say, you know, one example is one client started with us wanting to redesign their pitch decks mm. and how they pitch to investors and um, their board. And then going through that journey of speaking to the CEO and understanding what they're after and what they want to communicate, you then start to get to the soul of the product. Mm. And you go, well, you know, this could be translated in another way in your actual physical product or the, or your digital product like this. 
And then they start to realize that the words they're using are hoping to define the experience that everybody has. Mm. And it's not necessarily tied up into the traditional brand flow or the, um, the marketing flow. Uh, it's more to do with the relationship that this product has with the user and their words and the way that they describe it forms the way that they think about it, which then forms how you create it. Yeah. Let's um, dive into um, something that just uh, triggered um, something really important, uh, which is client relationship building. And you said you were creating this deck for um, this this sort of um, customer mm-hmm. who wanted to, uh, I guess, reignite how they communicate with investors. Um, yeah. So when I say client relationship building, um, you know, putting things into context here, you mentioned that you were uh, Samsung's first interaction designer and, and I believe you were there for a good six years. Is that correct? At Samsung? Uh, I, I was there for seven years, seven. but I only remember four of them. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Great answer. Um, and then Solve is yes. uh, your... Um, you're a co-founder in this company mm-hmm. and um, you've been you've been doing that for eight years now. Is that right? Or, or longer? Yeah, about, yeah. about seven, eight years now. Seven, eight years. Um, okay. Yeah. Working with a, a broad range of people. Great. Um, but mainly in the product sphere. Cool. So, so look, you've obviously got a, a grasp as to what it takes to build successful client relationships and you know the things that we should do and look out for uh what comes to mind when you hear those words client relationship building mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh it, it sounds like uh, a card from cards against humanity doesn't it <laughs> yeah. you need some other words around that to, yeah. to bring it substance um client relationship building is a very unemotive term for what is a very emotive experience mm. you know because it's all based on having to produce good work and if if you're not doing good work you're not going to have clients mm. in general um and it's built on the foundation of being able, of knowing what to do and how to do it but then that isn't the majority of my day isn't about doing that stuff because we know how to do it really well now it's more about understanding the client or the the friend that we're working with. Sure. Okay. So and that's, yeah. So, so if we, um, let's say put it in the context of a CEO or a top decision maker, mm-hmm. um, how, how does one speak to them both before acquiring their business and also after acquiring their business? Yes. Uh, and it's, it's pretty much the same way. You have to be honest you can't give false promises and then under under deliver. You really have to be as honest and as genuine as possible and know your expertise incredibly well and stay within it. Mm. You know, this the, the 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 relationship you're building is a relationship that you want to last for a long time. It's not a tender relationship. It's more like an e-harmony relationship. <laughs> you're, you're look, a, you're a long profile f- filling. Yes, exactly. Showing how committed you are (laughs) exactly you know and there's nothing wrong with a tinder relationship every now and again but you really are after no judgment here guys no judgment 
judgment. Now you're really after the long-term relationship because that's where it re- that's where you start to make a real difference and a change to a business. Yeah. Um, it's it's based on trust, and you speak to a, a CEO from your own expertise, staying within that, and letting them trust what you have to say. Mm. Um, that's have you, that's have you got important. an example there um, that you've faced? I'm sure you've you've had a couple of interactions. Yes. Um, yeah, there was one yeah. that we had one client um, with, uh, we generally start each project with a date with each relationship with a dating um, mm. project, yeah, where cool. we'll, uh, we'll do like a very short term, like two, three week project to show them what we can do and not to waste their time. And during that process, we get to understand what their relationships are like in that uh, client and then we did this one presentation where we were we went through a very rapid development of what's the problem, here are some wireframes, and this is the visuals. Mm. And we had a two, three-hour meeting with a client, and there was about 12 of them. So it's really, when you have that many people in a room, it gets to a point where everyone is showing off to everybody else. So we have to try and dampen mm. the ego of everybody in that room. <laughs> and... It got to a point where the most important person in the room started to shout and start going, I, I don't understand these wireframes. Just Can you just make this look good? <laughs> this is not making any sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, and, you know, 15 minutes, 15 seconds, we let him go on for, and then all of a sudden I go, look, we're going to get to the visuals at the end, but you need to know this before we get to the visuals because it's not going to make any sense. You're going to make a subjective choice rather than an objective choice. Mm-hmm. And then he quietens and the room goes dead for about 10 seconds. He goes, all right, okay, fine. That's good. Just as long as I know where I am, I like this. Now we could have jumped straight to the end and shown the visuals, mm-hmm. but that would have been not building it, building upon a relationship of trust. Um, there's a process that you go through and if you don't go through their process and you just pander to their um, requests and needs, mm. there's not going to be that meaningful relationship that you want to develop. Okay. In the end, yeah, we, 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 yeah, in the end we, we worked with them for about two to three years, which pushed through a number of projects with them. Um, and it made a big difference. Um, but being genuine and being honest, was the foundation of that. Okay. I, I, sorry, I was just about to um, cut you off in there because I got so excited um, with <laughs> my next follow-up question. Um, uh, and, and that is something that you just triggered, which was he interrupted you, right? Or he was kind of getting angsty or, you know, to <laughs> some degree. And, and I can guarantee you that everyone listening that is a designer can feel that moment happening to them uh, in the past. And Mm -hmm. I've had it happen to me so many times where you're going through the very beginning of the thought process and you're trying to present uh, your work in its best light. And it's, and in order to do that, in order to present how you got to where you, you got to, you have to show Mm -hmm. them your thought process and at least some of it and your background and your research and oftentimes, um, they are not interested in that part. They just want to see what you ended up with, um, mm-hmm. or 
they are seeing things that are preliminary and already they're going, oh, mate, this is way off, right? (laughs) But it's like the whole point is that you've explored that area or that territory and you actually Mm -hmm. are acknowledging that it's way off, but you wanted to show them that, hey, look, we've, we've gone in and we have pretty much covered all bases here. And mm-hmm. the reason why we're showing you all this is because it's reaffirming that that the solution or the the customer experience and the the visualization of all that is going to be um, something that you will also agree with. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you combat that sort of? It's not not really that aggression, but that sort of territory of impatience impatience and educating the the client um Mm -hmm. you know and just kind of basically you don't go to a doctor and go yeah not really happy with what you've diagnosed me um (laughs) you don't really know much about this i think it's actually just nothing um so i'm not going to get further checkups yeah exactly yeah um the the a few lessons that we've learned along the, the way to try and mitigate that. And there's always going to be clients which would do it, but there's certain practices you can put in place in your presentations before and during to help you with this. Before, one of them is pre-wiring. And uh, a friend of mine, Alex Baumgart, has got much more information on this than I can explain. But the best way I can describe it is when you go into that meeting room, you can't be the only person telling that story. You have, if it's the CEO or the head of marketing or the uh, design director, you have to have met with their lieutenant beforehand and presented to them and got them bought into what's important to them. So then when it comes into your turn to present to the decision maker, they're on your side Mm. or at a minimum, they're not fighting against your side because they see something valuable in it. So you're testing the waters first. You're testing the waters, but you're also seeding this concept internally without you having to be there. So you're, you're spreading the landscape of your presentation outside of that hour or three hours that you have. Great. Um, when you're in there, you want to get to your point as quickly as possible. So within three slides, explain what your conclusions are and what the end point is. Mm. Because if you don't, you get to that angsty, misunderstood part. Plus it gives them something to aim towards. It's almost like um, a movie which starts out with the almost the conclusion Mm. and then it goes to the backstory and ends up and then you're more involved in that story because you know where it could end up, where they're, where they're leading you towards. Mm. Um, and be short with your explanations of your working out. They haven't paid to hear how you worked it out. They've paid to hear how you solved it. Mm. And that's different from telling the narrative of the solution. One of the best presentations I've ever seen um, was the Soul Bass pitch to AT&T talking about the um, the outlined bell logo in the circle and what that really meant 
to the entire organization and what that would mean to their their visual presence in the world mm. and it's half an hour long and i highly recommend every listener to go find this um it's on youtube it's it's oh. on youtube yeah everything right. is you know um <laughs> life will be on youtube soon and um it's it's a phenomenal pitch because it's telling a narrative of the solution it's not telling them all the hours they spent up, all the research they did, all the um, multiple directions they came up with. He's talking about a narrative for the solution. Um, and then you need to set the context of what you're talking about. So all the questions are framed within the context that you set. You're not leading them down the to the answer, you're setting the context for it. Mm. Um, one example I can bring out is we, uh, a number of years ago, we did our first ever pitch to Salesforce, our first ever presentation to Salesforce. And we did um, a, a two month project to work out how they could make their feed within their applications smoother uh, and not be a fire hose of content. And we quickly worked out that it wasn't going to be possible because it's just so much content coming down into this feed. So we had to separate these out. So we worked that out very quickly, but what we had to do was work out why that felt right and what that was all about. So we surfaced up away from that problem and started to realize that it wasn't about a feed. It was about how people interact with something and how do people interact with it? Well, because it's a habit. Okay. So what's a habit? And we dove into habit formation and uh, behavioral science and understanding cognitive load. So when we went in to present these multiple feeds as opposed to one, we didn't talk about the feeds. We spoke about how habits define all of our actions. And the moment we turn an action into a habit, we've really created a positive experience for them, which then is impacted upon the perception of the brand, which is then on the product, which is on the brand and it starts to cycle and they become much more entwined than them having to perform a task. Mm. And it went incredibly well. And we went in and presented that to multiple people internally, uh, to different teams because we were suggested to and it finally surfaced up to the CEO. Um, and that was where it, it, it really taught me about understanding what those people need to listen to and what's really important to them hmm. and then presenting that. What's the best way, do you think, to find what what's most important to them, as you say, the, uh, you know, what, <laughs> what they need? It's uh Well, the reason why I ask this is because as well, you know, it's, it's really, um, and a lot of my previous guests have also touched on this slightly about, people knowing what their problems are in detail, but not necessarily knowing how to solve them mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, what they need is only limited. You know, they'll only suggest something of, of, of a solution to that based on mm -hmm. their capacity. Yeah. Um, so how do you best find what a brand or business needs? Well, to just to redefine the problem slightly, it's it. They uh, the one thing that we've noticed is they, uh, the clients that we work with, 
have an innate understanding of what the symptoms are. They know that they they see something wrong, and that's the symptom. But and so their their solutions will be based on the symptom, not on the underlying cause. And it's our job to ask the right questions, and more importantly, to listen to their answers, mm. to understand what their real needs are. Um, and there's a number of techniques you can use, and one which is as cheesy as the as the hills are old mm-hmm. is asking five whys mm-hmm. and you keep asking why until you get down to the emotional base of what that is mm-hmm. um you can't do it too many times because you sound incredibly annoying <laughs> but <laughs> why yeah. why you sound like a five-year-old right yeah. um but it it comes a point where they uh, whoever you're speaking to will get down to the root of what that thing is. Um, And also spending time outside of the design world, because design is a transaction between you and the client or the user and the product. And within a transaction, you don't really get to understand the bigger picture of what is being asked of you to do. So just spending time together with the client, relaxing, I often find being an Englishman drinking is a good way to uh, to find out what the real needs are, uh, because you know, sometimes you'll find out like one with one of our clients we find out they just didn't like somebody in their organisation, so they wanted to circumvent them as much as possible. Mm. Now that's not really a design problem that we can solve, but mm. knowing that we can tailor the solutions, yeah, um, or to address the symptoms that they have uh, in a different way. Have you got um, an example where, um, yeah, I guess, you know, something that springs to mind where you uh, have had a really big challenge to uncover the the problem or the opportunity um, mm-hmm. in, in an organization or in a, um, yeah, I guess in, a, in an experience that is somewhat flawed or broken in and, and you know, I often get um, potential clients going, hey, look, I'm going to create my own T-shirt brand and I want you to make a website. Mm-hmm. And then straight away, I'm like, well, hold on a minute. <laughs> T-shirts have been around for a while. Um, who, what kind of T-shirts are these? You know, and 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 what what are you solving that isn't mm-hmm. already existing out there? And this guy was like, oh, "I just want some passive income, man. I just want, you know, just <laughs> you know, I've got about twenty thousand, and I'm ready to kind of just chuck that into like a t-shirt brand of my own." <laughs> so <laughs> I, I had to really kind of settle this guy down and go, um, "Well, we're going to have to kind of have a workshop first, I think." Um, <laughs> And, and he just, you know, wasn't keen for that. He just didn't, didn't feel it was necessary. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, I guess throwing the the question back at you, you know, there are so many businesses, I'm sure ultimately they just want to make money and, you know, they've gotten so far, but how do they take it to the next level? You know, I guess, you know, for me, data and research is, is hugely important, but is there anything else that comes to mind when you're digging through to find what it is that their customers need? 
especially if you're not the customer yourself. Yeah. Well, I, an example that comes out comes to mind when um when you mentioned uncovering the like the the real the underlying symptoms. You know, mm. what what's the real problem that we're trying to solve here? Um, data is a good one. Um, observation is a good one, but then also just emotions, understanding what that emotion is meant to be within that product. Um, and one example is we, we work with uh, a company called credit.com and they, uh, are based here in San Francisco and they help you understand what your credit score is. Uh, and for anybody who doesn't know what a credit score is, it's a weird arcane construct of America based on the founding of the country to show that the more you get to manage your debt better, the more you're likely to um, succeed in the future when it comes to financial matters. So banks are willing to give you cheaper loans or credit cards are willing to give you more money on their credit card. Um, I had no understanding of what this was coming from England and not having a credit system over there when I, when I um, come over. So the idea of getting into debt to show that you're trustworthy was a, was bizarre to me. Um, and we designed some tools for them, uh, to help you map out what you would do once you know what your score is. Like now that I know that my score is say 750 out of 850, uh, what can you do with it? What can you get? And that, that was a very easy proposition that was, I have this, where do I go from here? But they asked us to design their mobile um, experience, their iPhone app. And at that point, you can't really do a lot of the traditional things like offering um, cards or loans because it's not permitted or it wasn't permitted then in the, in the system. So we had to dig deep and understand why is a credit score important to the user? Or why is it important to me more importantly? Like user is a bad term, friend is better, but it doesn't make much sense um, in the flow of a context, in the in the context of a, a discussion, sorry. Um, so why is a credit score important to me? And how do I bring something of value to that where it's an intangible? Money is understood because, you know, you use money all the time. Um, but an arbitrary number, which then is related to your trustworthiness, mm. is a strange thing. And the and we had to sit down for a while and, and we spoke to the stakeholders internally, we looked at all the other systems that are out there. But it wasn't until we realized that everybody was being secretive about their score. Because mm. it means so much, but it's a very personal thing. Um, that we went, oh, okay. So it's about comparison. It's about relatable. Like, how do you relate to somebody else with a different credit score? And why don't we base it around that? So why don't we make it something which is social rather than something which is private and flip those? So when you, when you download the app, uh, you get to see your score and you get to see your makeup of it and everything else, but you swipe across and you get to see how you compare to the rest of America or to people in your age group. 
Hmm. And when you start to do that, you start to build value around this number, which is expressive rather than introverted. Yeah. And working out what the emotion was in that problem was the key thing. And since then, it's become when you type in, um, apparently when you type in credit on the mobile phone, it comes up as one of the top apps to download, which is great. Yeah. Mate, that's um, a really, really important example you just gave. And, you know, for those listeners, um, you know, we've covered a lot of things just now, but I think when we start talking about emotion, uh, I think that hasn't been spoken about enough. Um, I can personally give an example of that same thing happened to me in a, in a project I did uh, a couple of years back where I did a government job and it was to create a tool, an online tool where people who, um, who are looking for a job can get jobs in, uh, in industries that were in demand. So basically the government wanted to fill jobs and they wanted to create this tool so that people can hop on and say, Hey, look, you know, there's a, there's a great chance that you can, you can get this job. And here is some incentives and those incentives we thought were going to be, yeah, let's just subsidize the courses so they can be, you know, like that, that's, we thought that was going to be the biggest motivator. But mm-hmm. what we found after interviewing hundreds of people across Australia, um, in all cities, wasn't that I don't care. You know, they didn't care about the the money. It wasn't about the money. They said, we're, we're more than happy to pay for a course. What mattered to us was that it, it had to guarantee us a job. Hmm. So that ranged from the 18 year old that's just come out of high school or the mum of, you know, late forties with three kids who's looking to get back into the into the market and, and start working full time didn't matter who it was. What mattered was that they will put in the hours, they will make time, they will, they will go to classes, they will do any, anything that they need to do as long as you, the government can guarantee me a job. That's all they cared about. It wasn't about even if you, if you gave us free, um, free money to do the courses, doesn't, mm-hmm. that didn't matter to them. Um, which was really interesting. And we never even thought about that. We never even thought about, you know, the likelihood, right? And here you're talking about credit scores and all this. And it is going that extra level deeper into the emotion. It's because, well, they've struggled for so long. Mm-hmm. They've done the courses, but they didn't give them the job. Mm-hmm. That's the problem, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Fear is a, is a, a, a fairly common motivator for products. Mm. Um, for experiences or, or, or systems because people want to know that they're going to get something from it and also that they're not going to fail hmm. at it. And yeah. the example you give, they put, they're putting a lot of effort in and they're afraid of failing at this. For no fault of their own. But if you can negate that fear, then you can move past it and it becomes much more of a, a positive experience. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so, mate, uh, there's a couple more questions here before we wrap up. Um, mm-hmm. The time has run away with us once again, my friend. <laughs> um, so a question I ask most of my guests 
if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to junior JP, that striking young chap finishing high school, <laughs> what would you, wasn't. What, <laughs> probably beardless, would, would you say <laughs> beardless back then or? Yeah. 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 Beardless J- and, yeah. and bigger. Yeah. <laughs> um, what would you tell him? Ah, good question. I would tell him uh, that it's going to be okay. That um, all these random strange things that you're looking at and you, and uh, all these little side projects that you're doing, or they're going to be worthwhile. You're going to fail a lot, but it's going to pay off in the long run. Mm, awesome. All in under 22 seconds, I think that was. Um, mate, what, what's next for you and Solve over the next few years? And, and have you got any side projects happening that we don't know about? Oh, uh, yes. Um, so first of all, uh, for Solve, we're uh, developing our own stuff. Um, so there's actually an application out there you could get now called Synchronize. Helps you time manage across cities. And we're developing that. Um Time, and then, a time management app is that right? Yep. Uh, it's 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 a it's a hard one to explain. The moment you see it, it makes sense. But you have all the cities that you that you have your friends or your family in across around the world, and if you slide the timer timeline across the bottom, you can then change the time in all of them. Um, mm. So you don't have to do that meeting math situation where you're having a meeting at two, but it's ten o'clock and they're in. Mm. Uh, Brisbane and yeah. you know all that kind of craziness um so it kind of it does it for you and we work we developed that with a, a good friends of ours at four people and we're going to be working on that um and then uh the the one which uh I'm really passionate about at the moment is a another art company called art of sport art of and, sport yep yes yeah and it's living room worthy sports prints Hmm. which sounds ridiculous, but it's true. Um, No offense to any designers out there who have done sports graphics, but they're generally gaudy and ugly. Hmm. And um, a a partner and I were getting drunk in the pub one night. We realized that we couldn't put our sports prints up for me, Arsenal, for him, Liverpool. (laughs) So (laughs) we had a few more pints and we carried on sketching. And it was one of those ideas that we didn't want to leave in the bar. Uh. So we went out and we spent a month putting all of this stuff together. And that was a couple of years ago now. And we've just been trying to make appealing artwork based on sports teams or countries. Um, so there's a few for Australia, uh, which you might like Ooh, okay. uh, for the Socceroos. That's it. And Yeah. Um, and uh, we're kind of expanding and exploring that and uh, developing some interesting applications for that as well. Is there, right a, now. is there a website we can go to for that? Yes, uh, it is artofsportstore.com. Artofsportstore.com. All right, awesome. Yeah. And your app that you mentioned as well, is there a website for that or is uh, it still yeah, under if development? The, uh, if you go to the iTunes store and yep. type in synchronize, correctly spell, um, it'll be there. And it's pink and black right. and it has a, zip strip across the bottom unreal mate all right cool and now how can uh listeners get in touch with you online directly Mm. uh my email address is jp at solv.tv 
And I'm on Instagram more than I am on Twitter. Uh, so my Instagram is John Stallard. And uh, what else? Um, yeah, that's about it, really. Stick with those ones. Yeah, cool, mate. All right. Thank you so much, JP. It's been an absolute pleasure hanging out with you uh, once again and here on the Giant Thinkers podcast for sharing, you know, some seriously useful tips and, and your story. It's, uh, it really means a lot to me um, that you could donate your time and I'm sure to those listening as well. So um, I wish you all the best and uh, continued success and happiness. And, and mate, let's, um, let's keep in touch. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks, JP. Cheers. Hey guys, thank you so much for spending time with me here on the Giant Thinkers podcast. I hope you enjoyed that one with JP Stellard. I deeply appreciate you choosing to listen because the fact is the show wouldn't exist without every single one of you. So I'm sending you lots of love through the airwaves. And a little sneak peek into the next episode, number 12, I'm bringing to you a woman known as the Instagram expert. I'm excited to have her on the show because she's incredibly knowledgeable but more importantly, she really walks the walk. She's a master of Instagram for business, teaching entrepreneurs, business executives, and marketing professionals how powerful Instagram can really be for brand equity and profitability. So stay tuned for that one. A quick mention that this episode was sponsored by our friends at Creative Live. As mentioned earlier, take advantage of the massive 25% off discount on any Creative Live design class by using the code GIANTTHINKERS3. It's only valid until the 30th of November, so head to creativelive.com slash giantthinkers. There you can see my top picks as a starting point, but have a browse around um, and, and see in the design channel what you really need. A reminder also to subscribe to the giantthinkers.com mailing list and to this podcast on iTunes if you haven't already. And speaking of iTunes, you know that I'd love to hear from you through a short review. So if you head to your iTunes app on your phone or computer, there's a leave a review button on there. Take a screen grab of it as well. Uh, when you do leave one, tweet it to me and I would love to thank you in person via a Skype call. So until next time, Giants, I'm Ram Castillo. And remember, doubts fill the mind when nothing else fills it. 